BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life, July 2022, episode three. I'm Jenny Devitt. And I'm Terry Bennett. And in this episode... Kate Walters asks if the Connemara is the ultimate pony. Lucy Proctor with news of equine bladder problems. While Toots Bartlett talks about two big competitions for Team Bartlett and what they learned from them. News of Marine Weeks from the Dorset Wildlife Trust. Carl Minton's been foraging this month for fat hen, elderflower and a prized chanterelle mushroom. Why you should feel privileged to find the ugly common toad in your garden. And Dorset flower farmer Charlotte Toombs explains why we shouldn't use crumbly green oasis for our flower arrangements. The Agricultural Transition and National Food Strategy from NFU County Advisor Gemma Harvey. Andrew Livingston asks whether farmers should embrace the world of social media. And James Cousins looks at Lee's. Equestrian. Is this the ultimate pony? By Kate Walters. The Connemara is a breed of native pony originating from the wild and rugged region of the same name in County Galway in Ireland. Prized for their hardiness, agility, extraordinary jumping ability, and not least for their temperament, Connemaras are understandably popular with children and adults alike. The British Connemara Pony Society's breed description is a well-balanced riding type with good depth and substance and good heart room, standing on short legs, covering a lot of ground. The height specification for a Connemara pony is 12.2 hands to 14.2 hands, but the overheight Connemara is probably everyone's ideal first horse. They have a gentle disposition, are deeply inquisitive and love human affection, making them very easy to handle. The Connemara pony is a safe and sensible breed which makes it a fantastic choice for all ages and stages of riding. Traditionally, Connemaras were bred to be the backbone of small farms, where they lived as part of the family. They worked from dawn to dusk, doing whatever task was asked of them, ploughing, pulling carts of turf, rocks and seaweed, and of course, on Sundays, they were the mode of transport carrying the family to mass, not to mention hunting, racing and local shows. They have a natural jumping ability, with a rectangular frame which also makes them suitable for dressage, their natural athleticism and versatility allows them to excel in all disciplines and makes great all-rounder ponies. In fact, the Connemara pony can be seen competing in all rings, show jumping, eventing, dressage, driving, working hunter, showing, hunting, side saddle. They make fantastic competition ponies and are completely safe riding ponies for children. Many of today's Fédération Équestre Internationale, that's the FEI, show jumping and eventing pony teams, representing most of the European countries, are made up of Connemaras and part-bred Connemaras. They have long been crossed with thoroughbreds to produce the ultimate competition horse, with a couple of notable showstoppers. Marion Mould's stroller was the only pony to compete at the Olympics in show jumping. He was just 14.1 hands, but clearly absolutely believed he was a horse. A bay gelding with a star on his forehead, he was a thoroughbred cross Connemara and was owned and ridden by New Forest-born Marion, Nate Cokes. She's very well known in riding circles across the New Forest and Dorset. 
Representing Britain, they competed in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico. And despite Stroller suffering with a tooth infection, they won the silver individual medal and achieved one of the only two clear rounds at the Olympics. At Olympia that same year, Stroller cleared a puissance wall of 6 foot 10 inches. Tommy Wade's Connemara gelding Dundrum was supreme champion at the 1961 Wembley Horse of the Year show, where he set a puissance record of 7 foot 2 inches. Dundrum was 15.1 hands, 61 inches tall at the withers. A 7 foot 2 inch puissance wall is 86 inches high, more than 2 feet higher than the horse. And Dundrum was carrying a rider and a saddle. In 1961, Dundrum and Wade won a total of five major competitions and a Sports Star of the Year award. Connemara societies around the world frequently refer to Dundrum as the best Connemara that ever lived. But he was simply one of the world's all-time great jumpers who beat the best of every breed. Kate Walters runs Whole Nest Connemaras near Sherbourne where she breeds competition, showing and hunting ponies. The Vet's Story and Cuddles with Trevor by Lucy Proctor. Last month we told readers about how, during foaling, one of our foals suffered a bladder rupture, which required medical stabilisation and surgical repair at an equine hospital. The vets at Western Counties Equine Hospital, our closest surgical facility, have since used the case on their website and have given permission for us to adapt their transcript for our readers this month, so we hope you find this interesting. Clinical signs of bladder ruptures which have occurred during foaling are typically seen in one to three day old foals. They become lethargic, may appear bloated, show mild colic signs and can sometimes be seen straining unproductively to urinate. These cases are medical emergencies as the electrolyte disturbances can cause heart rhythm irregularities and ultimately cardiac arrest. First urination should normally occur around 6 hours for colts and 11 hours for fillies. An average sized thoroughbred foal should produce around 7.5 litres of urine a day, which equates to a good stream roughly every 2 hours after nursing. If a foal is straining unproductively, a meconium impaction, or a blocked colon, is far more common. However, a ruptured bladder should always be considered. Observing urination doesn't necessarily rule out a ruptured bladder, as the most common site of rupture is the top of the bladder. Therefore, a foal may appear to urinate normally, even while urine is leaking into the abdomen. Studies have shown that the condition is more prevalent in colts than fillies, but it is observed in both. Uroperitoneum describes urine in the abdominal cavity. This buildup of urine causes electrolyte disturbances, the most critical of which is high potassium. A high blood potassium concentration can cause heart irregularities and cardiac arrest. A foal with this condition is stabilised with intravenous fluids. The abdomen is drained and the foal's blood parameters are carefully monitored. Once the condition is stabilised, the anaesthetic risk is reduced and the foal can then undergo surgical repair of the bladder under general anaesthesia. Hospital vet Afaya, who has a postgraduate certificate in medicine, stabilised the foal, administering and monitoring the anaesthetic ready for the surgeon Nick to repair the bladder. These cases are a team effort with lots of intensive nursing care and monitoring before and after surgery. As long as the foal presents with no other conditions, the prognosis for a ruptured bladder is favourable with an 80-90% to 90% survival rate.
and happily are full after post-surgery weeks in a small turnout pen, as readers will remember from last month, is now enjoying life with the rest of the gang of younger foals, stretching her legs to the full while galloping around in a large field. We always track the racing progress of horses we have bred and sold on, but it is extra special to either see them in the flesh at a race meeting or to hear from an owner or groom. So it was lovely to have been contacted recently by the groom of Triple Trade, a six-year-old Norse dancer gelding out of Doubly Guest, bred here at TGS and sold at the sales as a three-year-old store. Now in training with the Tizards near Melbourne Port, he has won one race and has been placed several times last season. His groom, Holly, sent us several lovely photos, including the one shown in the magazine of him having a cuddle in the stable. Holly told us how Trevor is such a big, kind horse and is very much her yard favourite. We hope that he and all our other TGS bred offspring get many more cuddles like this. Two big competitions for Team Bartlett with Lessons Learned by Toots Bartlett. Team Bartlett had a quieter month of competitions, but it still turned out to be an exciting few weeks. After a couple of months of getting to learn the do's and don'ts with Ecuador MW, the newest member of the team, we travelled to Aston La Walls for our first event together in the UK. It was also Ecuador's first event for a couple of years, due to the Covid lockdown in New Zealand, where he's recently come from. We had a truly fabulous day, and I was thrilled with the way he behaved and performed. He posted a 29 dressage score and followed that up with a lovely double clear in the show jumping. Being a little too speedy around the cross-country course, he's the equivalent of an Aston Martin on four legs, we picked up some too-fast time faults, which cost him the win. However, I hadn't been sure that I could form a partnership with him this quickly, so I was thrilled that there's every sign a good relationship will develop. We now look forward to taking him to Summerford Park, CCI 2 star at the beginning of July. Freestyle R gave us a fantastic weekend at Nunny International Horse Trials near Froome. Nunny's a local event which we always try to support and we're hugely grateful for all the wonderful volunteers who tirelessly assist the organisers to keep it on the international circuit. Freebie finished the CCI 3 star S dressage on a top score of 27.4. And after leading the two days of dressage, I did start to wonder whether the show jumping phase, historically our weakest together, would let us down. But he produced a lovely double clear, which was absolutely thrilling. My main aim for the competition was to gain my MER, minimum eligibility requirement, to enable us to move up to CCI four star together rather than winning. So this did take a lot of pressure off me and we were able to produce a solid clear round show jumping. I'm fortunate that through my training on world class and having played nationally in several different sports, I've learned to try and utilise nerves effectively. I always try and turn them into excitement to show what wonderful horses I have and how our training is being productive and beneficial. Unfortunately, some too slow time penalties on the cross country stopped Freebie from gaining his second international win, but he still claimed a very exciting fifth place. Homework for me is to get him a bit fitter and do some hill work. If you've prepared properly at home, then all that's left at competition is to try your best, safe in the knowledge that you've given your horses every opportunity you can to show what they can do. We definitely learn the most from the days we don't get the results we want, rather than from the days of success. Wildlife and Outdoors This summer, discover our seaside superheroes, 
by Dorset Wildlife Trust. In Dorset, we are lucky to have the most astonishing marine wildlife, from secretive seahorses and delightful dolphins to colour-changing cuttlefish and rock-licking limpets. The theme of this year's Marine Weeks from 23rd of July to the 7th of August is marine superheroes. Wildlife trusts across the UK are shining a light on the extraordinary sea creatures and plants which are helping to fight climate change and water pollution or have amazing superpowers. Dorset is a national hotspot for many sea creatures which have evolved special talents to help them survive. One such creature is the enigmatic seahorse, unique because it's the father that gives birth in a complete gender role reversal. In addition, seahorses have incredible camouflage skills and the ability to move each eye independently. Another common sight in Dorset waters is the cuttlefish, whose greatest superpower is the ability to become practically invisible by instantly changing its colour and skin texture to blend in perfectly with its background. To celebrate Marine Weeks, Dorset Wildlife Trust has planned a series of special events to get families and individuals involved in exploring the seashore and wider marine environment to discover some of the bounty that these habitats have to offer. At Kimridge Bay, there'll be the opportunity to join a dolphin watching session on the clifftop lookout, explore underwater marine life on the snorkel trail, or take part in eco-friendly crabbing and rock pooling activities led by our expert wardens. At the Wild Seas Centre at Kimmeridge, a state-of-the-art underwater camera will broadcast live footage to a screen inside the centre showing Kimmeridge Bay beneath the waves, or without getting wet. The centre staff will be getting the microscopes out on Plankton Day when visitors can discover the amazing diversity of plankton found in water samples collected from Kimmeridge Bay and also learn about the vital role that these miniature organisms play in our oceans. Over at Chesil Beach, there's the chance to join the Strandline Detectives Walk to hunt for wildlife treasure washed in from the sea and to find out what lives in the deeper water. Or you can take a trip on the glass-bottomed Fleet Explorer boat, which makes regular trips around parts of the spectacular Fleet Lagoon to explore its incredible underwater wildlife. To find out dates, details and costs of all the events in Dorset, and not just for Marine Weeks, go to dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk forward slash events. Fat Hen, Elderflower Fritters and the Most Prized of Finds by Carl Minton. July is here and we're in the full swing of summer with the call of our gardens and the great outdoors as strong as ever. I find myself suggesting walks to my wife and children most evenings, exploring woodlands and footpaths, always with a glint of excitement at what I might find to bring home to use in the kitchen. One such exciting find to be on the lookout for at this time of year is Fat Hen, Kenopodium album, also known as wild spinach. This plant, both nutritious and prolific, was a staple food for thousands of years, used as a valuable food source dating back to prehistoric times. Like so many things today, it's fallen out of favour as a menu item simply by virtue of its accessibility. It grows everywhere, and who wants to entertain guests by serving something that everyone has growing in their garden? Well, me, obviously. Amazingly, this plant, which most people will never try, has leaves that taste similar to those of spinach and can be treated the same way in the kitchen. 
Gardeners throughout the country will be picking it and throwing it on the compost, rather than saving the tender leaves and lightly steaming or tossing them in butter. It also makes a fabulous base for soups. Fat hen has diamond-like, sometimes referred to as goosefoot-shaped leaves, with a coating of delicate white hairs covering them. You can find it masquerading as a garden weed and on any footpath or waste ground. The fresh growth of leaves and flowers near the top are the choicest pickings for the kitchen. Another July staple, which we must all be passing every time we drive down a country lane, is elderflower, from the elder tree, Sambucus nigra. This plant is extremely important to the forager, as we come to harvest from it three times throughout the year. First, in early summer for the flowers, which we use to make cordials and other surprisingly exciting treats, then later in the summer for elderberries to make pies and jellies. Finally, we return the depths of winter for a mushroom, the jelly ear, Auricularia auricula judae, that's found almost exclusively on the elder's branches. Early July is usually the end of the window for collecting elderflowers, so set to it before it's too late. Often used as a hedging plant, elders adorn roadsides right across the Blackmoor Vale. Since late May, collections of the tiny off-white flowers have been hanging in sprays the size of breakfast bowls, enriching my walks with their deliciously distinctive sweet smell. Many of us gather the flowers to make cordials by steeping them in water and adding sugar, but a lesser-known use is to batter them whole and fry them, making elderflower fritters as a show-stopping accompaniment to your summer dining. It's worth remembering that every part of the elder is mildly toxic, raw, and should always be cooked before consumption. Of course, I frequently hear anecdotal stories of people who've nibbled on the raw berries since childhood, but the mild toxicity is a scientific fact, and one this forager cannot ignore when sharing his knowledge and passion, either here or on a guided walk. Finally, Towards the end of this month, we're hopeful we may find one of the jewels in the mushroom foraging crown, the chanterelle, Cantharellus seberius. This bright yellow mushroom is one of the best-looking and tasting mushrooms to hunt for, full stop. Hopeful excursions for this mushroom can start now and continue right until the end of the year. With its distinctive funnel shape and apricot smell, this mushroom can be found in many diverse woodland habitats. The chanterelle's preferred growing spot is on the sides of mossy banks, nestled into last year's leaf litter. It's a firm mushroom that you can wash without fear of it becoming spongy. It can then be used, just as you would any shop-bought mushroom, just with a far more satisfying feeling as you do so. Beware the false chanterelle, which appears similar. There are three simple differences, and even novices can learn to distinguish them. When cut in half, the false chanterelle is all one colour, whereas the true chanterelle hides white flesh beneath the striking yellow outer. On close inspection, the true chanterelle does not have gills, but instead its flesh forms folds which give the gill-like appearance. The false chanterelle, however, does indeed have true gills. Finally, there's that aroma of apricots, associated only with the true chanterelle. If you tick these three boxes, you're sure to have a safe foraging experience, and one that would make many jealous, knowing you've hunted down one of the most prized finds in the foraging calendar.
Homeless, Poisoned, Starved and Squashed by Jane Adams. As I drag out the recycling bin, a splodge the colour of pond water is looking up at me with copper-coloured eyes. A common toad. You rarely see them nowadays, but with their warty skin and bulging eyes, they're an endearingly ugly and harmless creature. This one's no bigger than a twopence piece, and it's winking at me. If you have an abundance of plants in your garden, with maybe a few areas of longer grass, the chances are you're already sharing it with frogs, newts and toads. Many amphibians spend their lives away from water, only meeting at ponds to mate and spawn. The rest of the time they are surreptitiously chomping their way through considered pests, like slugs and snails. My toadlet lollops under a hydrangea and instantly disappears. If it keeps away from predators it could survive 10 to 12 years, longer than most people keep a car or live in one house. However, their numbers in the UK are declining, by 68% just in the past 30 years, and in the last 100 years, thousands of the ponds they once used for spawning have been lost. Pesticides are killing slugs and other invertebrates they rely on for food, and they're being run over on the way to the few remaining spawning ponds. Toadlets emerge from ponds in June and July, so if you find one, think yourself lucky. This ugly Prince Charming could be a long-term pest-eradicating tenant if you provide it with the habitat it needs to survive. If you don't, it and the other amphibians we think of as common could be gone in the wink of a coppery eye. No more Oasis and Don't Say Maybe by Dorset Flower Farmer Charlotte Toombs. Oasis. No, not the 1990s Brit band, but the green blocks of crumbly square foam much loved by flower rangers. This squeaky plastic monster was a revolutionary wonder product back in the 1950s when it replaced those metal spiky frogs our grannies all had under their sinks. Oasis is made from the reaction of phenol and formaldehydes, which are turned into foam when air is passed through them. This is then treated with detergents to give them the ability to soak up water. And they're a chemical nasty that just keep on giving. As they age, they either break into tiny pieces, which run down your plug hole, or they go into landfill. And although floral foam crumbles, it doesn't fully dissolve in water or degrade in landfill or soil. Instead, it breaks down into smaller and smaller microplastics. These can take thousands of years to completely revert into natural elements and are a real menace for the environment by contaminating our marine life and food chains. Its horrors are now so widely accepted that the Royal Horticultural Society banned the use of floral foam at all its shows in 2021. A single-use, non-biodegradable microplastic that can't be recycled is frankly a sentence of expletives to any green gardener. The Church of England's legislative body has also been asked to consider a ban on floral foam in their churches. As a flower farmer, I grow my flowers in the most sustainable way I can. I grow a huge variety in all different shapes and forms to try and cater for as many pollinators as possible. It feels so wrong, then, that a plant I grow would be jabbed into such a toxic product. Luckily, a lot of florists have seen the light. There's an ever-growing array of great ideas for supporting cut flowers in cucumbers, in tightly packing moss into chicken wire, which can then be moulded into the shape that's required, a grid made with compostable tape, 
on top of the vase, filling the vase first with stiffer foliage. All of these methods take time to get used to, but are equally as effective as using floral foam. And, as a bonus, you can have that warm, fuzzy feeling that you're doing the right thing. Obviously, before the 1950s and the invention of floral foam, flowers were arranged and displayed using all of these methods. Search Google for eco-friendly flower arranging for a host of inspirations and try charity shops, antique stores or eBay to find your own vintage options. Failing that, they even now make those vicious metal frogs in plastic. At least they're not single-use. The Agricultural Transition and the National Food Strategy by NFU County Advisor Gemma Harvey According to DEFRA's Agricultural Price Index, the cost of fertiliser more than doubled between March 2021 and March 2022, with red diesel used on farms going up by almost a half in the same period. These rising costs and simultaneously reducing support payments mean the situation is growing increasingly difficult for many farmers. But in order to deliver socially, economically and environmentally, Dorset's farms need to remain financially resilient, profitable and productive. The rising costs are happening against the backdrop of agricultural transition as we develop our own policy after years of being part of the EU's common agricultural policy. A key part of this transition is a move away from direct payments in the form of the Basic Payment Scheme, the BPS, towards a system of payments for public goods, such as environmental outcomes and benefits. Research commissioned by the Great Southwest Local Enterprise Partnerships, the LEPs, and the NFU, shows that Dorset is due to lose tens of millions of pounds as a result of this. In 2020, Dorset received £38.3 million in BPS payments. Payment reductions will be incremental over the course of the transition period between 2021 and 2027. By the end of 2027, the total BPS amount lost from the rural economy of the county will be £33.5 million. There is no single replacement for these payments. Farmers will be able to apply for environmental stewardship agreements, the main one being the Sustainable Farming Incentive, the SFI, due to open for applications at the end of June 2022. Many farmers and growers may also be eligible for some funding towards productivity schemes. Although still being developed, as things stand, the SFI will fall far short of replacing what is lost by phasing out the BPS. The report suggests that SFI payments will only deliver 10-30% to of the lost BPS by 2028. The recent publication of the Government Food Strategy follows the independent review of the food system carried out by Henry Dimbleby in 2021. The strategy sets out the government's policy initiatives, taking into consideration the more recent challenges posed by the war in Ukraine and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the global economy. The strategy issues a clear statement of governmental support for domestic food production, maintaining our productive capacity and growing more food in this country in order to address the mounting concerns around food security. The NFU believes that domestic food production and environmental delivery go hand in hand. We are proud that British farmers have an ambition to reach net zero by 2040 while still maintaining current levels of food production. Looking at Lees by James Cousins. 
Over the last two months, we've been busy harvesting our grass crops into silage clamps, silage bales and hay, all to be winter feed for our cattle. In Dorset, it's been a dry season, and the showers we've experienced are more of a hindrance, especially when trying to make hay. It seems that every year at this time, grass growth stops, which means that some cattle have to be supplemented with additional forage. We're currently using last year's silage bales to keep the milking cows performing. To counter this, we're looking at sowing some herbal lees, following the example of many organic farmers who find these lees productive in dry weather and perform well without any additional inorganic fertiliser. The majority of modern productive grassland consists of fewer than five different plant species and are often composed of just two, perennial ryegrass and white clover. A herbal lee has a combination of 15 to 40 different grass, legume and herb species like clover, chicory, plantain, sanfoam and ryegrasses. They're left down for around five years before returning to arable for two or three years. In addition to providing forage, the lees also improve soil structure, add fertility and suppress weeds. This is all part of regenerative farming, something we'll hear a lot more about in the future. Our arable crops are beginning to ripen off now. Harvesting's likely to start by the middle of July, with the winter barley crop being the first to harvest, followed by our oil seeds. The crops look promising, but you can never be sure until they're in the barn. With prices all over the place, the marketing of these crops will be a challenge. Some can vary by £20 a day. We've marketed some crops already, taking advantage of what seemed like a good price on that day. With fuel prices nearly double last year's levels, fertiliser still very expensive and general inflation rising, the financial outcome on this year's harvest will be interesting. Our recent TB test gave us reason to celebrate, a second clear test after 18 months of testing every 60 days. We can now sell cattle to a wider market at sensible price levels. We'll also not have to test for another six months, which is a considerable relief. Let's hope we can continue to remain clear. Apparently, the TB vaccination programme may be rolled out in 2025, and although, according to our vets, it won't be 100% effective, at least it is a step in the right direction to eradicating this disease. As we're in July, let's hope the weather's kind for harvesting and everyone can stay safe in the fields and on the roads. Embracing Farm Talk by Andrew Livingston Twenty years ago, if someone had said that social media would be a vital tool for farmers, quite honestly, you would have thought they were mad. Farmer Giles down the road really wasn't updating his MySpace or Bebo pages. Today, however, Facebook, Twitter... Instagram, Snapchat and TikTok are all useful and engaging platforms for farmers. I'm not saying your average farmer needs to know how to do an Instagram story to be a good stockman or that a decent TikTok will help them know about their cereals, but it really does help in other ways. When I started at Wesley's Farm, I was quick to set up Facebook and Instagram pages for our farms in both Bemminster and Weymouth. I wouldn't call myself an influencer, but social media has undoubtedly helped us engage and sell our produce to our local communities. But the real reason that farmers need to be on the socials is education. 
people outside farming need to learn about what's really happening on farm. After the LEAF, that's Linking Environment and Farming, open Farm Sundays, social media is the best way to try to educate the public about the truth about farming, because currently they have no idea. Recently, in Weymouth, we had new birds placed for our next flock of free-range layer hens, and, as we always do, we put out a post promoting the girls. With the post, we published pictures inside the shed, a rare and moderately brave thing for a chicken farmer to do, as it always opens you up for scrutiny from those who seem to have no conception of where their food really comes from. The Facebook page was swiftly deluged with comments mostly untrue and misinformed, as the people of Weymouth decided to tell us that actually our birds weren't free-range. These aren't free-range then, and poor hens locked inside. One user did respond and put it perfectly. I swear we're so out of touch with where our food comes from, you can drive past this particular farm and see the hens out in the field. I don't blame the public for having no idea where their food comes from. Frankly, they've never been taught the truth. I wouldn't advocate for agriculture and the environment being a compulsory subject in schools, but kids do need to be taught at a young age what has happened for their turkey dinosaurs to reach their plate. Unfortunately, Countryfile and similar programmes don't show what true farming is like. Lambing season isn't always in warm, perfectly lit barns. For smaller farms, it's a case of chasing the lambing ewes in the middle of night across open fields through sideways rain. Millennials, Generation Y and Generation Z are all growing up with a greater understanding of the environment and of their own carbon footprint. Farmers need to fight to teach these eco-aware generations that farming is more than just a methane statistic. Apparently the mainstream news media isn't interested in showing farming in a good light, but thankfully for us, the new generations don't watch old news media. They scroll on phones and watch silly dances. And with that comes the opportunity to get seen and teach them something new. And that's the end of this BV Magazine podcast for July 2022. Join us again soon for the August edition. In the meantime, goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. Until next month. And goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt, until next month.